We just left Paul's grand crescendo in chapter 8, and now we find ourselves in a different spot in Paul's letter. Chapter 8 concluded with Paul asking, who can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? Paul provides a list for us. Hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword. No, 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 and no. Those cannot separate you because nothing can separate you or anyone else from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not a thing. Not death, not rulers, not powers, not things present, not things to come, not anything in all of creation, Paul writes, will separate you or anyone else from the love of God. The unwavering grace of God belongs to you, belongs to me, belongs to all of creation, whether you like it or not. And there's nothing that can ever change that. The grace of God is a force that is transforming all of creation, along with everyone and everything in it. And Paul hits the crest of that crescendo at the end of chapter 8, yet he begins chapter 9 with a great sense of anguish and grief. He writes that he has unceasing anguish when it come, as he comes to grips with the fact that, for the most part, first century Jews did not convert to Christianity. Paul's deeply grieved by this. You see, Paul was a Jew. The Holy Scriptures in the first century were written in Hebrew. The prophecies about the Messiah, about Christ, were from the Hebrew prophets. Jesus taught in synagogues and in the temple. He was run out of his own hometown for teaching in the synagogues, not in the church, because Jesus was Jewish. All of that is why Paul is grieved that his, quote, own people, or we can translate that a step further to brothers, and we can take brothers and go one more step forward, and we can translate that Paul is grieved over his own family. Because his own family didn't see and experience what he had. How can it be, Paul's asking himself, that the Israelites were refusing to come to faith in Christ Jesus? After all, it was the God of Israel who raised Christ from the dead on Easter. Before I became a, an official United Methodist pastor, I served as a youth minister at two churches in Virginia, one in Alexandria, Virginia, and one in Chesapeake, Virginia. Chesapeake, Virginia is down by Virginia Beach. Now, Alexandria, Virginia, and Chesapeake, Virginia could be, couldn't be more different from one another. But youth ministry is the same no matter where you are. If you've never been on a mission trip with middle schoolers in the dead heat of summer, and by Thursday, enjoying all of the smells that come along with that, you are missing out. If you have never led a Bible study with high school seniors preparing to go into life as full-fledged adults, answering all the questions that they have, or doing your best to answer the questions, responding to the doubts that they raise to you, then you're missing out. But one of the things that I loved to do most when I was leading youth ministry was teaching confirmation. 
I would do confirmation different than a lot of folks because I would start in September. And we would go all the way through Pentecost. And I loved it in years when Easter was late in the year, which meant confirmation got pushed into June. We'd go nine and a half months. You were only allowed to miss three sessions. We met for an hour and a half every single week. We started in Genesis, and we ended in Revelation. And we looked for the thread every week from Genesis through Revelation of God's amazing grace. Grace that has been baked into the story since God swept over the the dark waters and brought forth life all the way through the book of Revelation, which most of us avoid at all costs because it leaves us scratching our heads and going, what in the world is John talking about? At the end of this nine-month process, after classes and field trips and mission trips and and, uh, lock-ins at the church and and games and all sorts of things, the students would, would would choose to be baptized or confirmed on Pentecost Sunday. They would be confirmed into the faith that they had been baptized into as infants or as children, or they would choose for themselves that they wanted to be baptized that they were going to proclaim before their congregation, before their friends and their family, that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord of their life. But every year, every single year, no matter if there were 60 kids in the confirmation class or if there were 12, every single year there would be at least two students who for one reason or another would opt out of Confirmation Sunday. They would choose instead to remain in their seats with their families, or they would just stay home that particular Sunday and not be part of the liturgy. They were choosing not to confirm the faith that they had been baptized into, or they were saying no to baptism. Well, for these students in particular, I would meet with them in the weeks leading up to confirmation. I would meet with their parents. All of us would meet with our pastors in an effort, like Paul, to speak truth the truth of Christ into their lives to try to convince them that what we had been talking about for the past nine months wasn't malarkey, to try to convince them that the past nine months of their lives hadn't been a waste of their time. But you see, confirmation and baptism was their choice. Their parents couldn't force them to do it. I will never baptize a child who's being forced in front of the congregation by their parent. And the same is true for confirmation. No matter the size of the confirmation class, 60 or 12, there would be one, two, three, or more students who would say, no, or I'm not ready, or I'm not sure. Paul was ready to give up his life for the sake of his family. I wish that I could, have, I could say the same, that I was in the same position as Paul was when it came to my confirmands. I don't know if I had the faith of Paul. He said, For I could wish that I myself be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. You see, for, for the Apostle Paul, a new life in Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. A matter of dying to oneself and being raised in new life in Christ. 
That's what we celebrate when someone is baptized. That as the water drips over their head or as they come out of the water, their old life is being left behind and they are moving forward in a new life found in Jesus Christ. But Paul's not the first one to lift up that prayer of, please cut me off. You'll remember from Sunday school that Paul is lifting up the same prayer that Moses lifted up when Israel betrayed God's covenant with them. You'll remember Moses went up to Mount Sinai where he would receive God's top ten inscribed on tablets. But Moses didn't return to his people as quickly as they would have liked. Apparently God was on God's time and not on their time. And because they became impatient, they created an idol of gold, a golden calf, and they worshipped that calf. The people said to Aaron, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off your gold rings that are on your ears, on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and give them to me. And then the rings of gold were melted, and the calf was created. And Aaron said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Moses, with the top ten inscribed in tablets, comes down the mountain, and he sees his people, his brothers, his own family, dancing around a calf, and in anger, he threw the tablets that he had just received on the mountain. He burned the idol, he took the ashes of the idol, put it into the water, and then made the people drink the ash-filled water. Moses knew that something had to be done. His people had sinned against God. To God, Moses said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses responded with anger and despair. And the Lord responded with grace. Like Moses, Paul so deeply cared about his family and the work that he had been called to do after his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus that he was willing to trade his life, his own life, for the sake of his people. God promised Israel, saying, I am the Lord. I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. We must remember that when God makes a promise, God keeps that promise regardless of our ability to hold up the other end of the deal. God's covenant is a quid without the quo. The promise made by God, beginning with Abraham, through Jacob, leading up to Moses, and then we have the line of David all the way through Christ Jesus, was not made because of the merits or demerits of Israel. Israel's chosenness was not based on their ability to follow God's Ten Commandments or the rest, the other 600 plus mitzvah, the law. Israel was chosen because through them, 
through this family, God was to bless the world. And God continues to bless the world. They continue, Israel, to be a sign of God's faithfulness. They are a sign of God's redeeming work in the world. It can grieve us, all of us, just like Paul and Moses, when family members or friends or when a confirmand or by last count, I believe, ten, fail to respond to the proclamation of God's amazing grace. They may call you or me a liar or a hypocrite, or they might say that they need more time. All the while, we wonder, what could we have done differently? Could I have said something differently? What could have been done better? Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Can anything separate us? No. There's a person you're going to have to learn uh, about. His name's Jason. He's a mentor of mine. He officiated my wedding uh, with Allison um, way back uh, a long time ago. Uh, And since then, we've become great friends. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to reference him from time to time because he's, he's a much better preacher than I am, which is why I'll never invite him to preach here because then you'll want him and not me. Um, but I'm much taller and better looking, so there's that. But what Jason points out is that the no that all of you just mouthed, and I could see your mouths moving, the no that nothing can separate us from the love of God, it depends on us doing what we have been redeemed to do. And we've been redeemed, friends, to be the body of Christ, a body that is held and sustained by God's grace. There are going to be people in our lives, family, friends, confirmands, that we want to save. We wish that they would heed the good news, the same old song that we sing week after week. If we can only convince them, we think, to the truth that we cling to, then they will be okay. If we can only convince them of God's amazing grace, they'll be okay. But, and it's a big but, so you know it doesn't lie, we remember that the story, that this is a story of redemption and blessing and salvation, and it's not our story to fulfill. God is at work. God was at work in Moses. God is at work in Christ Jesus. God is at work in Paul then and now. God continues to be at work through Israel. God is at work right now in your life, and God is at work in my life. We cannot save anyone else any more than we can save ourselves. Friends, the good news is that we stand by grace and not by our superiority to anyone. Not superiority to Jew or Gentile, black or white, godly or ungodly. We, along with everyone else, are not held by our merits or demerits. Instead, we are held by God's mercy. We are held, friends, by grace. And this mercy, and this grace that we receive is a gift. As Christ gives himself to us in bread and wine. A physical, tactile reminder that by God's grace, through God's mercy, we are loved. They are loved. And all of us are God's. Amen.